Titus chapter 3. And we'll be starting at verse 1. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray now for God's help as we look at Titus chapter 3. Father, we thank you again for the power of your word that has the power to change our lives and the power to change our world. And so please now, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our hearts and help us to see and listen and as we reflect on our own lives and the world around us, help us to see clearly how what you're saying here speaks into those things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you may well have seen in the news uh, this week, uh, is Kate Forbes, uh, front-runner to replace Nicola Sturgeon as leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, not going to get into Scottish independence and politics. This isn't the time for that. You can ask David Rue what he thinks. I'm sure he's got an opinion. But the, the reason to mention Kate Forbes is that in some ways, the reason she's been in the headlines so much is because of her Christian faith. She's a member of the um, Free Church of Scotland. And 
Um, she has been very open about the impact that her Christian faith has on her and uh, the views that she holds about various things. So it's been commented that you can take the views of Karl Marx into politics without anyone batting an eyelid, but if you call yourself a Christian, then even if you, you, know, even if you also say that you want to distinguish between your private views and how you will act for the sake of the wider non-Christian community in public life, um, if you, even if you try and make those kind of distinctions, if you say you're a Christian, you're going to get a very intense grilling. Um, so um, Kate Falls has been asked over and over this week about her views on sex outside of marriage, um, same-sex marriage, transgender rights, um, and uh, we're yet to see, I think, whether she will survive the kind of storm that's been created around her. Actually, she seems to be doing okay at the moment, but let's see how how she gets on. Uh, but in many ways, she is yet another example of the themes that we've been thinking about in this letter to Titus as we come to the end of it. What does it look like for Christians to live out their faith in a culture that is sometimes hostile, confused, at times deeply troubled, and a culture that thinks at times that it, it ought to hate certain things that Christians believe. How do, how do Christians approach the increasing disconnection between what Christians believe and have historically believed, the kind of mainstream universal beliefs of Christians down the ages, as these become more out of step with what our culture around us is saying? Now, there's lots about Kate Forbes herself, if you've followed what she's been saying, which illustrates the kinds of themes of the letter to Titus. So she's been clear that it is her Christian faith which produces the kinds of views that she has on the issues that she's been quizzed on. Um, and we've been seeing here in, in Titus, it is truth that leads to godliness, chapter 1, verse 1. Truth leads to godliness. And you can't have and you won't have this kind of distinctive godly living that is different from the world around us. You can't have and you won't have that without it being rooted in the truth of the gospel. So the aim of Christians in engaging in the wider world is not to try and Christianize the world by kind of forcing non-Christians to look like Christians in their lifestyle while not really believing what Christians believe about Jesus. That's not what Christians are trying to do because in order to produce a distinctive lifestyle that lives differently from the world around us, you need to have the truth about Jesus and you need to believe that and that is what will bring forth the fruit of a lifestyle that is different from the world around us. And so the aim of Christians, instead of just trying to sort of go around Christianizing the world, as it were, in its, in its behavior, is instead to commend the gospel to people, say, I want to talk to you about Jesus, commend the gospel by living distinctively and attractively. And that is what we've been seeing through this letter. We saw that in chapter two, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, the idea of making the gospel attractive in, in what, it, what, it, what we see here is the kind of home workplace by how we live. 
And we thought about the situation where a non-Christian friend is asking you your views on the controversial, controversial issues of the day. You know, pick whichever one you like. And Paul is saying, make your life and your lifestyle distinctive enough that though you, these people that you're talking to may completely disagree with what you say, they will be intrigued and attracted by what you do. Such that they can't ignore it. And eventually what they want to know is not what your views on marriage are or whatever, but why do you live like that? Why are you so different? But living that way it's in such a way that people will ask you those kind of questions is costly and hard. And in this final chapter, Paul does a, a final push with his big argument in the letter. It is the gospel that will bring about the godliness that matters in our own lives and in our world around us. It's the gospel we need to stick with when we're under pressure about holding unpopular views. That's what we see here in these verses. <clears throat> and so we can see, if you've, got the, um, if you've got the handout, you can see the headings on the back. We can see, first of all, on the screen as well, go public with distinctive living. Go public with distinctive living. And we're looking here at both verses 1 and 2, and then the final verses of the chapter. They're kind of saying similar types of things, 1 and 2, and then 12 to 15. So in some ways, as we look at verses 1 and 2 in, in, in chapter 3, Paul is returning to what he said already, especially in chapter 2. So, you know, as he says, be subject to rulers and authorities, be... Uh, obedient, be ready to do whatever is good, slander no one, be peaceable, considerate, always been gentle towards everyone. He's again talking about the kind of lifestyle that Christians need to live in order that people around them go, what's going on here? So what's the difference? What is new here in chapter 3? Well, back in chapter 2, adorning the gospel, as it were, was about the home workplace. So the idea that he was, he was talking about being at home, but really the home was still on view in the world because the, your home was the bakery, and you live above the shop. Your home was the clothes makers. That is your home workplace. And so if you live out the gospel at home, you're living out the gospel in the world, in that kind of sense, in that world then. But, um, so, that, so that sort of had application for us to the workplace. But now, in chapter 3, he's broadening that out further into the world, into the kind of public square, as we might call it. So the Christian's number one allegiance is always Jesus Christ before anyone and anything else, before family and marriage, before work and friendship, before politics and government, Jesus comes first. But given that, first of all, that doesn't let you off the hook, Paul is saying here, if you look in verse 1, it doesn't let you off the hook in regard to obeying the law of the land and being a good citizen and, and, and so on. In fact, it's more than simply don't break the law, if you look. You know, don't break the law and go to prison. Well, of course, that, that's, that's a good idea for Christians. Not a very good idea to break the law and go to prison. But be ready, more than that, be ready to do whatever is good, positively speaking. People should know that Christians are the ones they can trust to act with integrity, with faithfulness. They can be the ones they can trust. Now, you tell me, is that how Christians are seen in the world? What do you think? Do people think of Christians like that? I'm not sure it is all the time for all kinds of reasons. You know, there has been shameful scandal done in the name of Christ. Well, what can we do about that? 
Well, we can go public in our own sphere, as it were, and become known as being different. And that means, verse 2, if you look, slandering no one, refusing to be the source or the transmitter of the latest gossip. No one, he says. That means not even those who slander us, who, who say bad things about us. Being peaceable and considerate and gentle to everyone. Is that, is, is that what we're known for? That is the question. We need to ask that of ourselves as individuals, in our own little worlds, our own spheres of influence, whatever they are, at home, at work, with friends and family, at school. Uh, you know, are, are we the person people will turn to when they need advice, when they need a trusted confidant? You know, if you're at school, would your friends think, yes, you're the person that they can trust and turn to when something is bothering them? And you're different from the others who would just take that little thing that they've told you and they'd immediately go and spread it as gossip amongst everybody else. But they know you're not going to do that because you're different. Those are the kind of questions we need to ask ourselves because that makes people go, oh, there's something different about that person. And then they'll ask you why. Well, we need to ask that as individuals. We need to ask that as a church, a whole church. So what would it look like for St. John's Downshire Hill to be known for doing what is good in the world? Not just a place to come to on Sundays, but a community that serves the world around us. Paul continues on that theme in, in verses 12 to 15. Do you, you, see, do you notice that in verse 14 he says, Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. In that world then, and in many ways still today, caring for urgent needs among the vulnerable was a way of standing out from the wider world. You know, no one else cares for, them, for, for these people, but look, the, the, the Christians do. You know, again, and so people are then saying, I don't get what they think about marriage or whatever it is, but I can't argue with how passionate they are about caring for those less fortunate for the poor, for the marginalised. So as I said, we're looking forward to having Jason Roach with us next weekend at the Weekend Away. He, he's the sort of director of training for London City Mission. And London City Mission help churches reach the unreached in London. And as part of that, we will be hearing from him about the opportunities there are to do that from here, even in Hampstead, even with St. John's Downshire Hill, what does that mean here? What does that mean for us with this particular building on this extraordinary street? How can we engage better, not just with people from similar backgrounds to ourselves, whatever that means, but with those from very different backgrounds, whether in terms of race or ethnicity or socially and demographically? Another organisation we've talked about as a church from time to time is one called Christians Against Poverty which is very much doing Titus chapter 3, verse 14, helping to provide for urgent needs for people in debt. And obviously this is a, a big and increasing issue for many 
um, in, in our society. Christians Against Poverty help churches set up a, a, a debt help centre where people can come and find help, but it's kind of integrated into the life of the church. And they help you do that so that you help people, as you help people with their material needs, you help them also by offering Jesus to them as you deal with their, very, with their practical needs and concerns. So I talked about this from time to time. It, it's, it's a project worth mentioning because it's the kind of project that, that, that we can't really do without having a key person who can maybe give like one or two days a week to it to make it happen. And then we need sort of volunteers around that. Um, but when churches have managed to set this sort of thing up, it takes that kind of person who goes, I could do that. I could give some time to that. Um, and uh, then we'll be able to get a team around it and, and, and start to make it happen. And maybe if you think that might be you, you can come and have a chat with me and we can talk about whether that might work. But as we talk about these things, as we talk about what could happen, and we're going to keep thinking about this as a, as a church, it's not just about formal projects. What we need to see, first of all, in these verses, in this first section, is it's about big and small ways any of us could go public with distinctive living. In our own world, tomorrow, when you set out the front door and you go to work, you go to school, you do whatever it is you're doing, going public with distinctive living, that is one of the big messages of this book, so that people go, why are you like that? Tell me who this Jesus guy is that makes you different. But then we have to ask, well, where's the motivation? What do we do when it's too difficult? What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we don't get it right? And the motivation, says Paul next, is in the gospel. So secondly, from verses 3 to 8, he goes on, be confident in the gospel's power. So be confident in the gospel's power. As we live distinctively and publicly out there in the world... It is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that will give us the power to do that. As we remember, do you, look, do you see this in verse 3? As we remember where we've come from. As we remember what changed and, and where we're going. This gospel, this good news that produces godliness is one that starts with everybody contributing absolutely nothing. Can you see that in verse 3? So at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, this is where it is really hard to be somebody like Kate Forbes trying to explain to the media why she disagrees with same-sex marriage, for example... Or why it's really hard to just be you or me talking to our, our, our friend who's asking us what we think. It's really hard because in our world today, it sounds like you're saying, you know, sex outside marriage between a man and a woman is as bad as, you know, I don't know, murder or something. It sounds like you're saying that. And people think, this is 2023. I mean, how can you possibly think? That's ridiculous. You know, love is love. 
And I know what evil is. I mean, evil is, is murder. You know, te- murder is evil. Terrorism is evil. But you can't put sex outside marriage in, in that kind of category, can you, in this day and age? I mean, don't be ridiculous. But that is misunderstanding something key, and we need to try and put this across, because the gospel, the good news, is not Jesus came for the good people. And some people are good people, and some people are bad. So be good. And, and that makes us kind of go, well, let's have a big argument about what being good looks like. And we all know what bad is, is murder. And you guys seem to be saying that kind of sex outside marriage is in the bad category, like, like murder. That's crazy. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus came for sinners. And do you see what he's saying here? He's saying all of us, at one time we too, sinners. That's who he came for. And beyond that, therefore, all sin that Jesus came for is serious. So, that means it's not that you're saying, okay, sex outside marriage or same-sex marriage or whatever it is, it's not that you're saying that's as bad as murder, it's that it's as bad as gossip. It's as bad as malicious anger. It's as bad as envy. It's as bad as greed. And who can say that they're not guilty of any of those things? Do you see? Because all have fallen short. All are sinners. All need a saviour. Never forget that, says Paul. Whoever you are. It's true, sin looks different for every human being. There are different ways that we rebel against the God who made us. But we all do it, whoever we are. That is where the gospel starts. And it's understanding that both for ourselves and then in the way that we communicate what we're saying that really matters. It starts with saying we're all sinners and we contribute nothing. But that word gospel means good news. And that's what we see then, because the good news, do you see this in verse 4? The good news is that when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. And not because of any righteous things we'd done, he says. Do you see that? But because of his mercy. Do you see the order of how it works? It's not that we have to make God love us and act in such a way that we kind of deserve his love for us. No, he, he loves us first. I came across this analogy this week, which I really like. People, people often think of God's love as being like trying to get water out of a flannel, you know, a slightly sort of damp flannel. And so you're kind of, you know, you're giving, it, you're giving it a big squeeze, and he's like, oh, I might, might be able to get a few more drops out if I really squeeze hard. You know, and if I, if I really sort of try hard, maybe God will love me a little bit more as I squeeze on the flannel. But it's not a wet flannel, the love of God, is it? not a wet flannel, it's a waterfall. It's like the Niagara Falls. There you go on the, on the, on the screen, lit up at night. But then, you know, I don't know if you've been to the Niagara Falls. I'm sure some people here have. But the, the love of God is like that, you see. We, we are sinners. We deserve nothing. We bring nothing. Verse 4, his kindness and love appeared anyway, and he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross and take the judgment deserved by sinners. He saved us. 
And then he changed us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, you have a new life now because you've been washed clean on the inside by that waterfall love of God in Christ. And that has made you new. So that having been justified, declared right with God, you might become an heir having the hope of eternal life. Verse 8. Now, if there is no saviour, if there is no forgiveness, if there is no salvation, all this talk about sin is no good news at all, is it? So in a world that doesn't know about this saviour, of course that world is going to find it hard to say that you know, God says how human relationships work. God says what human, male and female mean, all that kind of thing. Because if and when we fall short of those standards, we just feel condemned and we have nowhere to go with that. But the message here, do you see, is, no, we are all sinners, but there is a saviour and that changes everything. And we don't have to squeeze the love of God out of the flannel. There's a fresh start, even when we mess up, even when we continue to do that, even when we continue to fall short, there is always more love being poured out. And that is the point of the waterfall, isn't it? There is always more. You know, that astonishing thing with, you know, you stand in front of the waterfall and you just think, it never stops. It just keeps going. It just goes on and on and on. And you watch the water come tumbling down. I'm told that Niagara Falls, you get 700,000 gallons of water a second. 700,000 gallons of water a second. You just think, how on earth does that, where does it come from? But no, it just keeps coming and coming and coming and goes on and on and on and on and it will still be there tomorrow it will still be there the day after that it will still be there next year and so on it's a waterfall it never stops you are washed you are clean if you're trusting God nothing can take that away nothing can change that if you're conscious of the ways you've fallen short of God's standards for us the way that he designed us well know that in Christ there is forgiveness and a fresh start and it never stops and therefore Christian be confident in the power of the gospel in your own life to change you and make you more like Jesus as you believe that you're forgiven as you believe you are loved, believe that he will change you. So much of the reason that we kind of feel mediocre and we feel like, you know, I'm a pretty rubbish Christian really, is because we've just got that flannel view of God's love. And so every time we mess up, we think, oh, there I go again. You know, rubbish old me. And I'll have to crawl back to God and, you know, see whether I can squeeze a little bit more out. But it's a waterfall. And it's for sinners like you and me. So be confident in the power of the gospel to change the world. It will change our friends and our families and everybody else. Well, before Paul winds up, he revisits one final theme that he's made clear in the letter. Not only do we need to hold on to the truth of the gospel, we need to defend it and rebuke false teaching and false teachers that was the message back in 
chapter 1. And now he adds a little bit more as he comes to a close. And he says, be wise about controversy, verses 9 to 11. So, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. So what is going on here? Is he contradicting what he said before? Because, you know, back in chapter 1 he said, rebuke those who are not teaching the gospel. Rebuke those who've left the gospel behind and are kind of playing catch up with the world and um, just saying what the world wants to hear. Well, he, he can't be contradicting himself. In fact, you know, verse 10, he, he still thinks you need to warn divisive people and warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. There are some things you need to take a stand on. The question is what? Well, the key word in verse 9 is not controversies. He, he doesn't say avoid controversy at all costs. Do you see what he says? He says avoid foolish controversies. And that word foolish is sometimes translated speculative. In other words, this is about arguing about things that aren't clear, that God has not made clear, that he has not said clearly. And so that's why he mentions genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. The false teaching in Crete, it seemed, looked impressive and religious and maybe even had a kind of Jewish character to it, which looked religious and attractive in that culture. But it's leading people astray. And it leads to arguments about things that God hasn't said. See, the, the point is, though, there are plenty of things that God has said. And you may need to argue with people about those. The, the, the issue of the day, as we see from the media reaction to Kate Forbes and so on, is, is, you know, is, is same-sex marriage and all of those things. That's the issue of the day. Is it foolish to quarrel about that? That's the question we might be asking ourselves, isn't it, in our world? Because that's where, that's where it really bites. And we just think, if I could just not have to engage with that, then life would just be a lot easier. Is it foolish to quarrel about that? Well, it's, it's foolish to expect a non-Christian to live like a Christian, certainly. But that's not what Christians are saying. But it's not foolish to distance yourself from those who say they are Christians, but deny things that God has said very clearly in his word. That's the point, isn't it? If God has actually said clearly what human flourishing looks like, what male and female human relationships look like, if he's connected that and made it not just something that's sort of around the edge of Christian life, but if he said, you know, actually marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the gospel, a union in difference. If that's the point of marriage, to point to people of God's love for the church, and then we start changing that and fiddling with that, and it's therefore changing the gospel, can you see that is something that God has said clearly? That we can't afford to be quiet about, because if we do that, we're denying the gospel that we treasure and hold on to and is so important. But what we need is wisdom to see the difference between the things that we need to be clear about and stand firm on and the things that we don't. Because sometimes we go too far, doesn't it? And everything becomes an argument. We become like, you know, someone whose toolbox only has a hammer in it. Do you have a toolbox like that? My, hammer, my toolbox sometimes only has a hammer in it because I have a habit of taking things out and leaving them around the house and not putting them back. But do, do you know the saying, to the one who only has a hammer, everything looks like a nail? You heard that? 
And so every point, big or small, every minor disagreement becomes a, 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 a point of division and argument, because that's the only thing we know how to do, argue about everything. But no, be wise about controversy. Stick with arguing about the things that God has made really clear. And don't argue about other things. That's what he's saying. So as we finish then, this letter has been challenging us, hasn't it? Not easy to talk about these things and to hear these things. Our culture may think that we are mad. The media may tear us apart. We, we, we need instead to live in a way that they're not expecting. To love those the world doesn't love. To be those that people can trust in a world where no one trusts anyone. And then be confident in the gospel's power to change us and the world around us and stick with and defend the truth that leads to godliness. Let's have a moment of quiet to reflect on our own response and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we are those who are and at times continue to be foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy, even hated and hating one another. But we thank you for your kindness and love that we don't have to squeeze out of you, but has been poured down on us so that we are clean once and for all made new because of Jesus' death on the cross we have new life we have new hope if we're yet to see what that means for us to understand it, to embrace it for ourselves. Help us to do that, to put our trust in Jesus, to accept what Jesus has done. Say, please come into my life and change me and make me like Jesus. And having done that, might we then live in a way that makes people want to ask us why we're different? that commends the gospel to a, a lost world. We pray for those who are in the public square or in different ways, particularly 
under pressure because of their faith. Whether it's politicians like Kate Forbes or whether it's people in businesses and workplaces. We pray that the way that we live would draw the world around us to want to know more. Might that be true of us as a church as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.